What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. You're listening to the best of Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. Be sure to catch our show live every Sunday on 1370 AM Austin. For information, archives, and upcoming presentations, visit our website at www.livingwealthyradio.com. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio with your host, Teresa Kuhn. Good afternoon. You're listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard every Sunday at noon here on Talk Radio, 1370 AM, streaming live at talk1370.com. I'm Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Do you feel free? You are more likely to be killed by the police than a terrorist. Is that freedom? 40% of your income is taken from you by the government. Is that freedom? You have to obtain a government-issued license or permit to do many of the things that you think you should have, you should be a basic right. Is that freedom? Or are you really living in a police state? Our guest today, Adam Kokesh, here to help you understand how to fight back and how self-empowerment and the right attitude is what liberty is all about. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks. I appreciate the introduction, but that seems like a tall order. I'm still kind of figuring all that out for myself as, and uh, making it up as I go along. But I will I will do my best to pretend I didn't say that and already have all the answers. Well, you've got you've you've had quite the experience. Uh, you're a former Marine, and uh, is that was that the first introduction in your life to liberty and? Um, the the whole issue with regards to what this country was that like an eye opener regarding what this country is really about? <laughs> well, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to answer that question by starting with the history of the libertarian movement in the United States, and because it is actually very relevant to that question and to why uh, I, I feel so strongly about. Uh, the message the way that I do today, because when I, and and this is so, sort of open to debate, but I believe that modern libertarianism, at least as, as a coherent philosophy, was codified by Murray Rothbard in in the 60s and 70s, and a lot of that led to the formation of the Libertarian Party in 1972. And when people hear about this philosophy, and it, it's not a philosophy, it's it's one conclusion of properly applied philosophy that human beings are going to be happier and society is going to be better run and organized when all human relations are voluntary, free of coercion. You know, this is the foundation of the ideal of capitalism, but that most maligned word has been, you know, confused in so many ways, and we forget that ownership of the means of production means self-ownership. The most valuable means of production is the individual human being, and respect for that means a voluntary, stateless society where all interactions are free of force, fraud, and coercion, and that is the ideal that humanity should be striving towards and all uh, uh, relationships based on persuasion are superior to those based on coercion. You take humanity back from its potential anytime you relate to another human being with force, or you vote for a politician who's going to take your money to hire someone to point guns at people and control society through coercion. So when, when this idea was really discovered, or at least, you know, became popularized by Rothbard's writings and a lot of people latched on this and like figured it out and it's like it's almost like a, it's like figuring out that the world is round instead of flat. And, you know, when when the first people said, Hey guys, sorry, the the world's not flat, check this out you know, a lot of people screamed at him and called him heretics and they said you know, can you imagine if, if they had said, Well, okay, the world's not really round but it's not flat. It's it's kind of like it's kind of like uh like like a frisbee ish, you know, it's kind of oblong something whatever. I, but it's not quite Round. Okay, I understand it. Pretending that the uh, distortion of the 
Earth through gravity and whatnot is, is actually not there. It's actually round. But if we, if the people who said, guys, look, the Earth is round, decided to say, oh, crap, if we say that the Earth is round, people are going to hate us. They're going to be angry with us. Let's, let's tell them it's, it's sort of flat. That's kind of what happened to libertarianism in, you know, the, you know, in the 80s and 90s. As it got popular, it got corrupted and co-opted uh, by people who wanted to take it mainstream and thought the way to do that would be to compromise the principles. So now to get back to me to answer your question, when I was in high school, I said, I'm going to be a libertarian because I don't want to be a Republican or Democrat. That's lame. You know, what, what, what are my other options? Oh, libertarian, leave me alone. Sign me up. And what I got was this watered-down version of libertarianism that was like uh, minarchism, which is really a form of conservatism because it's not true to these fundamental principles of self-ownership and the non-aggression principle. So I still joined the military. You know, I was a libertarian, but I thought I could do violence on behalf of government and that that would somehow achieve freedom, which is a, an absurd idea. And I learned firsthand in, the, in my experience in Fallujah in 2004 and in general in the Marines. You know, I was a reservist who volunteered to uh, to go over twice, went once, but it was enough to learn the hard way that we were making enemies faster than we could kill them, and that the entire concept was wrong, and that actually having a military makes a country less safe. So that was a very influential experience for me, but I'm, I'm very passionate about the true message of liberty and, and, you know, really separating the conservative version of that or the non-freedom-grounded version of that from real libertarianism because it's, it's really a cancer on the movement and that it gets people to think that some violence or some coercion is okay. And while I realized a lot of powerful things from my experience, it still took me really 10 years. I was a pretty slow learner, and I had to, I had to figure a lot of this out for myself and, and get into the reading and, and discover what liberty and what, what freedom really meant to come to the point where I'm at today. So does that answer your question enough? I, Roundabout I, enough answer? I think so. <laughs> when, when you were a U.S. Marine, your fellow Marines, were they shocked at your philosophy, at your way of looking at the world? I mean, here you are against violence and against um, war and you're still over there and you signed up for it. Well, that's the thing is that I wasn't back then. I, you know, I, I, thought I, I, was a, I thought I was a libertarian, but I wasn't. I was really just another conservative. And that's, that's the real danger with this idea is that if you don't embrace liberty as a matter of moral principle, you're still capable of doing things that are very dangerous and contradictory to that and, and, and supporting government. And if we believe that, you know, if we, or if we accept government, then we're saying that morality doesn't matter. If, if we say that government should exist, we are saying that, that uh, we can accept a society without morality. And, and I, I refuse to accept that now. But at the time, you know, I was smart enough to be against the war before the war happened. You know, that, that really wasn't hard. The height of the anti-war movement was before the invasion in 2003. Uh, you know, in that spring, there was the, the National Day of Student Walkouts. I was in college at the time and participated in that. But I fell for all of the other lies of, well, we're cleaning up our mess or, you know, we're trying to do right by the Iraqi people. And I thought that, that uh, you know, we could help spread democracy mm -hmm. at the barrel of a gun, which is – which is what democracy is, by the way, two wolves and a sheep voting on what's for dinner, as uh, Franklin, Benjamin Franklin pointed out. And it is fundamentally immoral. I mean, we shouldn't just assume that democracy is a bad system because uh, of that, but we can also look around us and observe and apply reason and conclude decisively that democracy is an immoral, dangerous, and destructive system and, and really needs to be abolished along, you know, because you know, it really has become this great ex post facto justification for everybody in the elites to do what they were going to do to the rest of us anyway. Oh, well, we're, we were going to, you know, put everybody on a plantation and make them slaves and, you know, take as much from them as we can and make them work for us all the time. But, oh, you know what? Since they won't accept that, if we tell them they can vote and instead we use the IRS to take half their income and we print money with the Federal Reserve to devalue their savings and steal more from them that way, and we do it in the name of democracy, but they can't resist because we're forcing on them by this government that they think that they need, well, then it'll be that much easier to control and dominate the population, and, and, and that's where we are today. So much contradiction, right? And isn't that part yes, of the game? I mean, and well, this idea that democracy is the will of the people is absurd. I mean, it, at very best, functioning as described in textbooks, it's the majority coming up with an excuse to forcefully impose their will on the minority. But as long as that process is manipulated by the people really in charge, as it always inevitably is, 
and not just the electoral process, of course. When you allow the institution of government to exist, it is going to be corrupted inherently. So whenever you have, you know, the people behind government pulling the strings, whether it's funding campaigns or bribing politicians directly or whatever the case may be, you're going to have that force uh, in that institution used against people, used to serve the elite and, you know, the super class that, that has always really been behind, uh, you know, all the power structures in society that, that are uh, destructive and, and exploitive. Our country was founded on republic, right, on a republic form of government, not really a democratic, but it's become democratic. How different is the liberty thinking and philosophy uh, compared to our republican form of government, which our country was founded on? Well, no offense, but it sounds like you've really fallen for some pretty dangerous propaganda. I mean, uh, a republic, even even as described here, is based on you know a majority vote. So it's still based on people choosing leaders for others that are going to be imposed on them by force, or their decisions are going to be imposed on others by force. So it's really subject, you know, to all of the same problems. But if you think, oh, well, democracy is bad because it's mob rule. Oh, I know we have a republic. Well, guess what? That's just the latest excuse by the super class to get you accept, to accept more government. But the fundamental premise is just as immoral, is that you have, you know, uh, force and violence being committed against individuals who are acting peacefully, whether it's in collecting taxes or imposing regulation or border control or the police state or anything else, you know, based on this fundamentally immoral premise of, of government. Okay, so the Constitution, from your perspective, right, the Constitution, the, the whole way our government was originally founded, which today I think we're very different from that, are, are you, is your thinking also that the way our government was originally intended? Oh, well, uh, if you want to go to original intent, the Constitution is a horrible anti-freedom document, because before that, there were the Articles of Confederation, and it was, it was, there was no strong central government. What the Constitution did was create a central authority. And, and the Bill of Rights was really the excuse, again, another excuse to get people to accept more power in their lives or more violence and coercion, more central control. Uh, you know, but it, it, obviously words on paper don't protect your rights. And if you really look back at American history, there there were no real good old days before the, you know, until, you know, uh, or at least the only real good old days were before the Constitution, that brief period between the Revolutionary War and the creation of this strong central government in 1789. So from 1776 until then, you had relative freedom. But no, the Constitution was a huge step backwards. And a lot of the American superclass, you look at Madison, um, you know, the or excuse me, Hamilton, and the people that wanted to have a central bank because they knew that there was going to be a way to rip people off. You know, we had a central bank. Uh, we, well, this Right now we have the third, and uh, you know the Federal Reserve System. It's lasted as long as it has with modern propaganda. But the, the the desire to create a strong central government to rip off the people was really what was behind the Constitution. I mean, there was no reason other than that to have a strong central authority. The Constitution was a step backwards in and of itself for liberty in America. But if you understand what government is, you know, as a concept, the Constitution, of course, is a dangerously anti-freedom document because it creates all of these arbitrary powers. It's a social contract that is imposed on people who never signed it. You know, by no sense, as Lysander Spooner described, by no sense of, of law or reason can you impose a contract on someone against their will or who hasn't signed it. And yet that's exactly what the Constitution is and does. So if you're born into this country as a citizen, uh, or you're mm -hmm. born into this country because geographically this is where you were born, right? Or actually, that, I think that's true in anywhere in the world where you're born. You're kind of born into whatever system of government is in place where you're born, right? Right. And mm -hmm. so there's an implied social contract. If you're born somewhere, you've got to follow the rules of the community you live in. Well, an implied social contract is really an excuse to take away your rights. That's all it is. I mean, if I walked up to you and said, hi, I have this implied social contract that says you're going to have to give me 10% of your income or I'm going to lock you in a cage, you would say, hey, screw you, Adam. I never signed that. What are you talking about? Well, why would it be any different for government? Does government magically make it moral to steal from people or to lock 
people in cages for not doing what you want? I mean, of course not. So, yes, you have to abide by the rules of society in which you live in because they're forced on you when you're born there. But the only rules that should apply, and this is what we advocate as libertarians, is the, you know, the fundamental rules of morality, like don't hit, don't steal, don't kill. You know, and it's not unless you work for the government. No, those are still immoral things. And, you know, you, in a sense, you don't have to respect the rules of society. You can break the rules. I mean, politicians and government people do it all the time, but they get away with it because they're government. So if you're born into a certain situation, yes, that's the reality. That doesn't mean that's ideal or how it should be or that we should just accept or, and not resist or try to change it and, and call society to a higher standard of morality, which, again, I think is really the core of, of, of the message of liberty. So those that really understand liberty, what are their arguments against liberty and, liber- and libertarianism? Well, the only real legitimate argument against libertarianism is that people believe they need to be governed. People don't want to be in charge of their own lives. And the only way for them to get what they want is to be governed by force. And I think that reflects a very disastrous uh, and negative view of, of human nature that, that, that I really uh, have to reject. I, I believe that we all deserve and want to be in charge of our own lives. By virtue of taking every single breath that we do, we are exercising our will and our free choice to continue to live. And, and that should be respect. So if you're saying that you know government is necessary, what you're fundamentally saying is some violence is necessary necessary to organize society. Now, I'm not saying that we're not at a point today where we have so many social institutions that are based on violence, that people are, aren't dependent on that. I'm not trying to deny any of that. Or that we should be advocating for a peaceful, voluntary transition away from this destructive system that we're in right now. And, and my solution, personally, is localization. I think we can take governments apart from the top down and localize them. And one of the benefits you get there is that the people that are, are still so self-loathing as to think that they should be governed by force, that their will should not be respected, that they need someone in their life to violate their will and impose their will on them, they can do that and find that situation for themselves and not impose it on the rest of us who want to be free. Where in the world is there a society that lives by this philosophy? Does it exist? Well, there have been various instances uh, throughout history of, of brief periods where societies flourished uh, with roughly the system. And I don't think that's a, you know, a, a great way of measuring it because you could ask that about any new idea. You know, really, uh, libertarianism as, as a philosophy is, is kind of, or a coherent worldview, is kind of like a new technology that's never existed. And, and yes, it's, we've seen various limited versions of it tried in the past with mixed results. But it's kind of like asking the question, oh, well, you've invented a car. We've never been able to get around without horses. I don't think this is going to work. Or more, more uh, perhaps a more parallel description would be slavery. You know, when uh, America was going through the, the conversation around slavery, there were a lot of slave owners going, but, but who will pick the cotton? We've never had a society anywhere in the world where without slaves you've been able to pick cotton on such a massive industrial scale and have the kind of fabrics that we enjoy here in America. And the people that were against slavery said, you know what, it doesn't matter. You're going to have to figure that out because slavery is freaking wrong. It's morally abhorrent. And in the same sense, any violation of freedom is just as wrong because it is claiming ownership over someone. It is violating their right to self-ownership. Now, it might not be as complete as the slavery that we knew of as institutionalized in America or in other countries where you actually directly say that you own someone, but it's almost more honest for uh, for a slave owner to say, I own you and you're my property and I'm going to enforce that and this this is how it is, than for a government to say, aha, you're free because you can vote even though you work for the government half the year because we take – and if you really add it all up, it's, it's well over half of the average American's productivity is it, stolen by government. And that is a violation of your self-ownership, because if you own yourself, you own the product of your labor and you have a right to that as your property. Absolutely. I could not agree more with what you just said. Right. So the slave who understands who his master is, I believe, is is more in truth than most Americans who think they live in the land of the free and the home of the brave, and they're actually working for the master 
50 percent of the mm-hmm. year at least mm-hmm. and it's become so perverted now you know people don't even know the difference between the country and the government and they use america to describe those things interchangeably or the people and if america and and, and i'm very proud American history, of the heritage, of what the American Revolution meant for moving the ball forward for liberty. Hey, we went from monarchy to republicanism. You know, that was a step in the right direction. You know, maybe you could see it as a step sideways. I think it was there There was some real progress there to be proud of. But now it's so perverted that, you you know, look at Americans talking about immigration and illegal immigrants. An illegal immigrant is someone who disobeyed government to live free where they want to live. That sounds pretty darn American to me. And I would argue that most most people who are in this country illegally committing civil disobedience by their presence, defying tyranny, defying people who want to deny them freedom of movement and freedom of choice of where to live, they are far more American than most American or rather U.S. corporate citizens today. Natural law, John Locke, um, has been known to um, be one of the early philosophers around natural law. Does, it, does libertarianism have its origins within natural law? Definitely, definitely. And I, and I think John Locke was one of the most important intellectuals in developing uh, the, this coherent set of beliefs for humanity, although he had, you know, he had a lot of things wrong. Most importantly, he created, or at least he was the first to describe the way that he did. And, and it, it's hard to describe an intellectual in the sense because he did have a lot of impact, but we can't can't say, you know, who else might have been advanced over him in, in prior years and all the intellectual work of humanity. I mean, I like to go back to even Socrates and Plato, and especially, you know, I apply in, in what I do in my interviews now a, a very Socratic dialogue kind of technique to pull out the contradictions and, and cognitive dissonance that people have to have in order to justify statism. But John Locke's concept of property rights, of mixing your labor with the, with the natural resources, is, uh, you know, absolutely fundamental to these ideas, because if you don't have a sense of property rights, uh, you know, of, you know, what do you respect to someone's property, then you can't respect, you know, self-ownership and, and who they are as, as a person. So that was that was absolutely fundamental. And I think a, a lot of people, you know, are forgetting to, to really just get clear on terms. But, you know, taxation is theft because either the government owns us or, you know, it's, it's taking something from us against our will. And if you don't have a solid foundation for what is property rights. And by solid foundation, I don't mean you have to go read the two treatises of government and, you know, every word that John Locke ever wrote, but to, to just simply understand how it applies that when natural resources are unclaimed, they belong to no one. When you claim them and you legitimately put them to productive purpose and mix your labor with them, then you own them. And this this has radical implications for how society is organized, because right now governments claim all the land within their territories, within their monopolies. And that's, uh, you know, uh, totally invalid as a, as a claim to property. But if we if we really socially, you know, as a, as a, as a species start figuring these things out together and recognizing what property is and how it's based on self-ownership, not just, you know, whatever government says is property, then we can settle a lot of disputes that are that are uh, really right now subject mainly to the corruption, violent intervention of government, but, but also that are, are subject to these bad ideas, which allows for emotional manipulation and false claims to property. Adam, I think this is a great place to break. In the land of the free, have you forgotten what freedom means? Adam has a very interesting perspective and life story on freedom and libertarianism. When we get back from the break, we'll continue the conversation with Adam Kokesh. Living Wealthy Radio. Visit Teresa's team online at livingwealthyradio.com, 1-800-382-0830 now. Call 1-800-382-0830. Welcome back, Austin, to Living Wealthy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. Liberty and justice for all. You say it every day in grade school, today at most sporting events. If you're just now joining us, we are speaking with civil disobedience activist and advocate for libertarianism, Adam Kokesh, about what you can do to restore liberty and justice. So, Adam, how did you become a civil disobedience activist? 
well, <laughs> my mom raised me right. What can I say? Uh, it, it, she definitely gave me a good sense of how arbitrary authority is to be avoided and disrespected and simply uh, eliminated from your life as much as possible. And I think... How'd she, how'd she frame that way of thinking for you? Like, did she say, you know, whatever I tell you to do, don't do it or do something different? No, <laughs> no and it, it's funny because she's, she, she's not, or at least before I got, was not political at all. Don't tell anybody, but my mother is actually Canadian and uh, that makes me half Canuckistani. So she came. She she has a U.S. citizenship now that she applied for, uh, you know, and went through the naturalization process after getting a green card and marrying my father in college. But she she was not a libertarian. She was not politically inclined. It was just sort of, hey, Adam, this is the common sense attitude towards, you know, BS authority. This is this is how you deal with it. This is this is what you do. And uh, she was very open with me. And I think you know the most important thing we can do, you know, in in achieving a free society is raising our children nonviolently. And, and living by example to them of being using using our words, you know, using persuasion. And, and I really want to thank my parents, but my mom especially, for being very consistent in that. You know, when my mom said, don't hit, don't steal, she didn't say, unless you work for the government. You know, she, I think, was very, you know, very clear about how she wanted to raise me. And, and you know, I, I never got, uh, well, I remember she, she struck me once. I got hit once by my mother and uh, never by my father. It was because it's it's not necessary. You know, punishment is a violation of someone's freedom. Trying to manipulate their behavior by causing someone pain is never, ever justified, whether you're government or a parent or just a, a friend or another individual, fellow human being. It, you know, we should be, you can, you can use violence and self-defense or force to preserve property or to defend yourself from an aggressor, but, and, and you can, you know, it's okay for people to come together and force isolate people who are uh, who have made themselves a threat who have sort of given up their rights by violating the rights of others you know all of that is justified but punishment as a concept is not and it's it's the same thing with everything government does every single edict of government is backed up by the threat of force if you don't do what we say we're going to lock you in a cage but the income tax Filing the income tax is voluntary, of course, though. <laughs> right, as Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi would like you to believe. Sure. But, um, <laughs> so the recent right. events in your life, right? Um, I understand you went so far as to load a shotgun in Freedom Plaza. How funny! In Washington D.C. Right. Very well, ironic. Not <laughs> right. Isn't that ironic? And you got arrested in Freedom right. Plaza. It, well, the name is ironic, and, and I just want to say that. I think we're all inherently disobedient. We all choose to live our lives based on our own choices. You know, we don't, well, most people, I don't think anybody is capable of completely giving up their free will to someone else. So in a way, you know, we're all disobedient, but in terms of even legally, civilly disobedient, just with what my mom raised me, you know, you, you do what you want to do. If you know what you're doing is right, then it really doesn't matter what people are threatening you with or what the words on paper are. And I, I've taken that into my activism and, you know, use civil disobedience as one tactic to spread the message. And in some places, you know, you can get real change, although I think in, in today's world, civil disobedience to uh, change policy in terms of, you know, civil disobedience that is, you know, public and deliberate and actually risking persecution, I, I, don't, I really don't think it's very effective. Um, wide-scale civil disobedience that's behind the scenes, like not paying your taxes, like um, not following, you know, BS arbitrary laws locally, things like that, all of that can contribute to changing policy. You know, right now, we just covered this story on my show on Monday that we are, as Americans, less likely to be audited in the IRS than ever before because they know that they really can't squeeze that more out of people directly without there being some pushback or more resistance. But as long as they can keep the illusion of the progressive income tax going and, you know, print more money, borrow more money in Washington, D.C., then it really doesn't matter to the, the racketeers behind government. But civil disobedience is a very powerful tool for calling attention to injustice. And, and Was that uh, your thinking when you were in Freedom Plaza and got arrested? Were, well, you, were was, you trying to be kind of... <laughs> disobedient? Were you trying to get yourself attention or arrested? Or what was your thinking? 
Well, I'm happy to admit that there was a, a relatively poorly thought out action. And it resulted in me spending four months in jail, two months in solitary confinement, a raid on my home with, by the way, this was the second time they sent more men after me than bin Laden in terms of uh, the individuals. And, and, and remember, when they raided the bin Laden compound, they sent how many? One helicopter in, right? When they came to raid my home, we got an armored vehicle, over 40 police, half a dozen cruisers, a street taped off, and two helicopters in the air circling my home. So they, they really took advantage of me as an excuse to justify a lot of wasteful government spending. But I think we made a very powerful point that for all of what I suffered as a result of this, including having a flashbang thrown right in front of me in my house, laser sights pointed at my chest, uh, my girlfriend at the time was in the shower on her period and was pulled out and forced to sit uh -huh. in her own blood for several hours. Me and my housemates were, were in a similar circumstance. I was roughed up a little bit. Um, you know, all of that was for a victimless crime, which is essentially not a crime. If there's no victim, if you're not violating anybody else's rights, there's no crime. So, you know, you apply that universally and, and, and government no longer can exist because you see how it is fundamentally criminal. But, you know, I, I think that the Jefferson Dance Party w was even a, a better, clear demonstration of this. And for your listeners that don't know, this is one of the things that really put me on the map uh, as an activist beyond my anti-war activism was when I had a TV show in D.C. There, there was a judge's ruling that came down that said, you cannot dance at the Jefferson Memorial. And this came out of a case three years prior when a bunch of libertarians went down there at midnight on Thomas Jefferson's birthday. And, and by the way, the memorial's open then. You can go in. And they had headphones on, so they were silent and not disturbing anybody else. And they were asked to leave. But as they were leaving, one of them was dancing out with her headphones on, and she was arrested and fought in court, and the judge came down and said that that was not appropriately reverent. You know, to the guy who was allegedly the great champion of free speech that Thomas Jefferson was, no, you must be reverent and worship the state statue of this man, this pile of stone and metal, the way that we say, or else we're going to put you in a cage. And, and we just wanted to show the absurdity of that and went and danced deliberately at the memorial, got it all on tape, and we succeeded beyond our wildest dreams in demonstrating the violence and coercion of government, thanks to the park police officers that showed up and body slammed me and roughed up a bunch of protesters. And that video uh, really went super viral, got millions of views. My version was one of uh, several and that, that, you know, got over a million. And, you know, it, it really laid bare the fact that if the government says, you can't dance here, it means that if you dance here, violence will be used against you. And that's really the premise of every single government law. If they say, you know, you owe us half your income, it means if you don't pay it, men with guns will come and lock you in a cage. If you're not allowed to drive this fast, you know, we're going to steal from you and, and, and we're going to stop you. Like if you uh, when it comes down to it, it is a every single law is a threat of violence against you as an individual. And if people just realize that, at least would, they would seek alternatives. And, and I think if you, if you recognize that, if you understand the definition of freedom, you understand the definition of government, you realize that they are fundamentally diametrically opposed, that, they, that, that one cannot exist with, with the other. Right. And therefore, you are inherently, you just, you, when you wake up to that, you, know, you don't go back to sleep. When, when you wake up to, well, the Constitution, wouldn't that be nice? That's not waking up. You know, that's becoming a little more politically aware. When you really wake up to the nature of government, you can't go back to sleep, and you can't help but be compelled to help move humanity forward by helping other people realize these fundamental truths. So I've got to go back to, to when you were arrested, right? Because, I mean, these are just questions that, that I've had, and I know a lot of our listeners probably have had. When, when you posted the video that showed, you know, you and Freedom Plaza with the shotgun, did you think that there would be consequences? Did you think they'd come after you? Yeah, and it was really naive of me to think that they might come and knock on my door and politely, you know, book me and then release me the next day instead of the raid that I got the raid and, that you, got. you know, being denied bail. In that sense, I, it, was, it was poorly planned out activism, and I think there's all of their set of lessons to be learned from that. Well, the joke was, at least for me, when I found out that um, you were charged with possession of mushrooms, right, I thought, oh, sure. Mm -hmm. 
of course he's going to leave his mushrooms in his home when he goes out to Freedom Plaza, knowing that he might be arrested. He's going to leave all his stuff out in the open for them to charge him with, right? <laughs> what a joke. Yeah. Yeah, no, there are Obviously, that was of, planted, right? Well, there are a lot of fishy things about how the raid was conducted and what came up as evidence and what didn't. And there were a lot of people living in the house with me. So, you know, I don't want to jump to a conclusion and say, well, it had to have been planted. But we know that there were people in the house that were stealing from me. Um, while I was in jail, my legal defense fund was stolen by someone who worked for me. And uh, it was like they were trying to keep me in jail in order to keep living off my business. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would be I would be very surprised if at least one of the people that was on my team back then was wasn't an infiltrator. But uh, we did. We also saw the police carrying in full evidence bags and brown paper bags when they were working to break into my gun safe. And I don't know what was in there, but, um, you know, this is the world that we live in. And turning people into informants or agents is, uh, you know, something that happens every single day in America. And it sounds like it's this far-fetched conspiracy thing, but we know that government itself is a conspiracy. But more importantly, for the, the facts of this case, every time someone gets busted for petty possession, there's some law enforcement officer thinking, how can we turn this person into an informant to get to their dealer? Because that's the bigger fish. That's the, you know, the bigger non-criminal that we can take advantage of. That's going to make us look better. So I, obviously all of those factors were at play in, uh, in, in my story. And what was, you know, how did the case end? Well, I ended up having to take a plea in D.C., and I'm still still dealing with uh, some of the fallout for the charges in Virginia. I still have to go back to court, um, but I, I'm hoping and uh, we're, we're pretty confident that uh, I, I should just get time served. So that's what happened in D.C. when I was finally released. But, you know, they wanted to make an example out of me. But uh, when they saw the kind of public support that I had, it, you know, the, they – you know, in a, in a way, this is the way it played out, kind of had to back down. But uh, if we had had the support that, that I knew was out there and I didn't have, uh, like, again, you know, by my own admission here, having this poorly thought out and not being prepared, if if we had, you know, the NRA getting behind me or even the GOA or, uh, you know, any of the, the significant gun rights groups uh, or even just my own operation being better organized, we, we would have been able to better fight it. I would have been able to get out on on, uh, on bail, and we could have mounted a proper legal challenge and, and possibly challenged this on, on constitutional grounds, which is what I was hoping to do if we had gotten to that point. But realistically, in D.C., the problem isn't just that you have this corrupt, destructive government system that's acting outside of the Constitution, but that people think that the jury trial is a fair process, and it is absolutely not. And I don't say that just because most people in D.C. support gun control. That is, most people in D.C. support a violent policy that violates the property rights of their fellow human beings, but that also you can select them, and the jury process is highly manipulated, and the odds of even being able to uh, to be allowed procedurally to make that case in the circumstances as they were unfolding looked uh, incredibly rare. Plus, I had all the other typical pressures that are put on people in that position to be bullied into taking a plea deal, you know, other charges being thrown against me, other threats from the prosecution and, and things like that. And it was a really tough decision for me, but I ended up taking the plea deal there. And uh, Why so were you in it, solitary it, it confinement? <laughs> For my own protection. For your own protection. Which is really funny. Is that what yeah. they said, or are you being serious? No, I'm no, I'm absolutely serious. Uh, they said because it was a high-profile case, you know, you automatically start in, in solitary, which which I can appreciate in and of itself. Um, but when I was first in solitary in Virginia, uh, I was actually in a bit of a torture chamber, and and I don't use that word lightly. Having I've tortured people myself uh, as a U.S. Marine, and it's something that I very much regret. And uh, it was what I did was relatively mild compared to, say, what happened at Abu Ghraib. But I, I crossed the line. I know where that line is. I know that line was crossed with me being in a, uh, a a tiny cell with no mattress, with the lights on 24 hours a day, without proper clothing. I had shorts and a T-shirt, and it was too cold to sleep. I was on a starvation diet of three bologna sandwiches and a carton of milk a day. You know, when you're 200 pounds, that's that's a starvation diet. You know, I was I was I lost 15 pounds, 
uh, the first three weeks I was in jail, and uh, you know I had ants in my cell, and, and it was um, it, it was you know I mean I can handle it, and I was able to keep a smile on my face, but it was pretty unpleasant. But then they uh, I eventually made it out to general population, just to give you an idea of how how at risk I was as a, an inmate there. As soon as I got to uh, to general population, I was you know I was mobbed by inmates sticking their hands out saying, hey, I saw you on TV and love your stuff. And it was, uh, you know, everybody knew why I was there. And, and I, you know, aside from the uh, the kingpins with the deep pockets, I was probably the most popular guy on, on every block I was on in uh, in jail. And, and really it was a great outreach opportunity talking to guards and inmates. And, uh, you know, I, I don't have any regrets. I, I think life is too short for that. But I really... Uh, enjoyed my government-induced, taxpayer-funded spiritual retreat, and it was just another adventure. <laughs> you had an epiphany while in jail, huh? Oh, yes. Plenty of time to uh, to medicate, to exercise, to fornicate, and to to, to rest up and to, to do some deep thinking. So I, I, I definitely got, uh, got some of that in as well. What did you come to realize about life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness while you were in in jail? (laughs) Well, I suppose you know what the answer to that question is because of the way you ask it. But, yes, there was one really fundamental epiphany for me that that I feel now is incredibly important to share with people. It's a a chapter in my book. I wrote this out while I was in jail uh, called Happiness Causes Freedom. And we kind of have it backwards in America, really in the world in general, and that we've been lured into thinking in this way that is suggested by the famous words, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we think of that as kind of a progression. Obviously, if you don't have life, you can't have freedom, you can't have happiness. But the suggestion that, you know, uh, happiness is something to be pursued is dead wrong. Happiness is a choice. It is a frame of mind. It is something that you decide right now for yourself. It's not something that you go and chase down and beat over the head with a club and drag home to your cave to enjoy forever and ever. It is something in the way that you choose to live in the present. And in a sense, it is based on a kind of freedom. You can't choose to be happy unless you're mentally free, psychologically free, a free thinker, if you have full respect for your own desires and will as a free, beautiful, independent human being, you will not subject yourself voluntarily, as all of us do to some degree, to the emotional manipulations of others. And when you can understand internal freedom and that choice to be happy, then you realize that that kind of happiness And if everybody on the planet had this, we wouldn't have statism at all. But that that is what leads to external liberty as well. If you're if you're always an emotional slave, an emotional cripple, you'll you might have external freedom. But what's the point? If you can't be happy and you don't know how to enjoy it, really, what's the point of being free? And if you look at the people who are the, the hardcore statists in society that drive this phenomenon of government to be what it is, they're not happy people. In fact, they're miserable. But when you adopt this perspective, it totally changes your view on them. And if you can be happy literally with a boot heel on your neck, and you can look up at that officer, that soldier, whoever it is, that violent enforcer of government, and say, you know what? I feel sorry for you. I pity you. I don't hate you. I don't resent you. I don't want to fight you or resist you. I want to love you and empower you and share the joy that I get from living with you so that you will not continue to suffer as an oppressor. So there have been, I've actually interviewed uh, a gentleman who was an inmate in one of the worst prison systems in the entire world in South Africa. And he came to that conclusion many years after you did. He spent, um, I think, seven or eight years in prison before he realized that he was in his own prison, in his own mind. Mm. Yes. And even though before he was in prison, he felt he was free, it was really, you know, the prison in his own mind where he had put himself. And it was only in prison after seven, eight years of this living hell and I don't know mm-hmm. if you've done any research on the South African prison system, but 
as bad as you had it, I think it's a little worse over there. Oh, yes. Um, oh, yes. He, he came to realize how free he really was in prison, and he came to love and forgive. And the stories, you know, the, the Holocaust survivors. And, you know, it's so interesting. You've learned, you learned this a few months. Right. In jail, really four months. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I don't want to go there. Don't get me wrong. I, I think what you went through is, is very tough. No, no, it, it, it really. And, and even even the torture that I experienced was insignificant compared to the suffering that results from statism from so many other people in America every day. I have no problem uh, putting that in proper perspective. But what a lesson and how you can use that lesson for contribution and sharing with other people. Uh, you know, you have no bitterness. You've got such a f wonderful attitude. And you've got a platform now, whether people agree with you or not politically, right? Whether they agree mm -hmm. with you or not regarding, you know, the, what, the, the act of civil disobedience and Freedom Plaza. And I know you've gotten all sorts of heat. You've got tons of supporters and tons of people who think, you know, that was a dumb move, right? Whatever they think of you, the contribution you make moving forward with just that message on happiness, I think, Adam, that's, that will do more for the liberty movement than probably anything else you could say. Well, I appreciate that, and, and, and I think you're right that if there was one single idea other than the message of freedom itself, the, the, the core concept of the non-aggression principle, self-ownership, and all that, that I would want to impart to people is choose to be happy and choose to be free. And, and, and you can imagine how much better off we'd be as a movement if we had adopted this back in the 70s when, when these ideas first started gaining popularity. And instead of, you know, falling into this, you know, this trap of minarchism and, and, and you know, again, if you, if you believe in minarchism, if you believe in, in this, you know, thing that's about as rare as unicorns called limited government, then you're saying, you know, I only want force and violence to be used for things that I haven't figured out how to do peacefully yet, to which any advocate for big government can say, yeah, me too. And if, if instead of taking on this attitude of, of, well, we're angry and we're sad and, you know, we're tired of this and, and we're fed up and we want change and we're angry. Like, really, what, what are you telling people when you're trying to convert them? Oh, by the way, please join me in my anger and my fear and my depression and we'll, you know, misery loves company. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be a part of that. I mean, we've been turning people off for decades being angry. But if you can show people that by choosing to embrace this philosophical perspective, it has made your life better. Hey, you don't have to live with the guilt or shame of disobeying BS laws. You don't have to think that you're wrong for, you know, defying authority. You can live psychologically, emotionally free and choose to be happy. And you can have an understanding of the world that empowers you to not fall for the propaganda, to not fall for, you know, all of the things that, that reduce our quality of life because we believe we have to live a certain way to either avoid the violence of government or to meet the expectations of others. It makes your life so much better. You know, you understand that, hey, Big Pharma, as endorsed by government, doesn't have your best health interests at heart. That, you know, the big food processing industry doesn't, you know, just because the FDA says that, that, that you know, high fructose corn syrup is safe doesn't mean it's true. Just because the government says the military is keeping you safe from terrorism doesn't mean it's true. Like, all of these things that you can, you can apply to live your life differently and improve the quality of your life through this understanding, that's what we need to be sharing. That's what's going to win people over. No one is going to want to join you in your anger and your fear and depression, but everybody is looking for a way to live better. Adam, I, I can't add anything to that. We're going we're gonna to close the show with that sentiment. You, Real quick, uh, you've recently relaunched your podcast, Adam versus the Man. We're going to have a link on our website, Living Wealthy Radio, and your new book comes out July 4th. And um, thank you so AdamVersusTheMan.com. much. AdamVersusTheMan.com. Yep. Thank you so yep. much for joining us here on Living Wealthy Radio. God My bless. pleasure. Thanks for having me. You take care. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio on Talk 1370 and streaming live at Talk1370.com. I'm Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. 
resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. place where your hard-earned cash could grow safely and sanely without being pilfered by bankers, Wall Street, tax collectors or other persons of dubious character. A place where you could say no to the motion sickness inducing ups and downs of the stock market. Where you didn't have to grovel on your hands and knees every time you wanted to borrow money from some tight-fisted banker who collects all your private data and then turns you down. Such a world sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? Well, it isn't. All you need to do is call toll-free right now and ask for your Living Wealthy Financial Information Packet. It costs nothing and it will tell you exactly what you need to do to chart a more prosperous financial course and take back what belongs to you. So, do it. Call right now. 1-800-382-0830 That's 1-800-382-0830 Or, visit our website at www.livingwealthyfinancial.com You'll be glad you did. If you're a business owner who wants to sell your successful company, then you need to pay careful attention to what I'm about to tell you. Selling a business in today's crazy-making economy is not for the faint of heart. A successful sale requires courage, resolve, and a big pair of um, free selling tools. Get your free risk analysis tool and special report today from the only company that can help you sell your business in 49 days or less and pay zero taxes. Go to www.deltabusinessservices.com forward slash exit coach to download yours today. That's www.deltabusinessservices.com or call us at 210-369-4161. Tell them the guy with the sexy voice sent you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.